I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, please pass this copy of Rendang Among Yourselves. If you feel the urge, um, tear out a page. Uh, and at the end of the evening, you will, be called, you will be called on to do something with your torn out pages. Um, and what that is, I can only speculate. <laughs> but keep the book going around and tear out a page, uh, and, and go on, go on, be a sport and, uh, and tear out the first, just, just so people, uh, people know that it's uh, legit. Now that's what we like to see. Uh, pass, pass it along and keep it going round. Welcome, Rachel, welcome, Thank you. Will. Is this working? This evening is all about Will, because it is Will's publication day for the incredible Rendang. Um, and I was going to theme my reading around what I love most about Will's poetry, but I think I'm not actually going to read for that long. So I'm just going to read one really grimy poem about glands and then a short sequence of poems that I will link back to Will's poetry after that. So while we're ripping up the book, I feel like I want to read a poem that rips apart the body of an animal, sort of trying to pay homage to the fact that books were made from animal flesh way back in the day. This poem's called Porcine Armour Thyroid. I am a gland, the smooth opal gland of a pig who is bubbly with glands. And the glands torn open in this pig's shorn neck look like droplets of sperm on the end of your glands. I eat the glands of pigs for breakfast, and I take a few in pills each night, slipping down my throat a smooth oblong like oysters or snot. I rub the loose oil glands in my hands to moisturize pale mermaid's purses, salted like eyeballs, like lychees, and then I bathe in some glands, slipping round each other, the miscreant lump under skin, a gland enlarged with the promise of sickness, a geode of glands, the color of bad livers, the smell of bad lungs, full of poor white blood cells, or good white blood cells, or the blood work of a pig, whatever's farthest, most holy to the ground. People are being coy with the book ripping. Everybody's trying to do it very gently, <laughs> when this deserves far more ripping apart, actually, than Will's book. The second sequence of poems I'm going to read is called The Girls of Situations, and one of the things that I love most about Will's poetics and poetry is that he seems to resist the idea of assumed identities in a poem and adopts these performed selves uh, in a way that is incredibly powerful and brilliant. And I think I tried to do this with this sequence um, coming from a family of cleaners. I was trying to sort of reorient my background and who I was in a semi-fictionalized way. The girls of situations. 
history holds, the incorrect theories of the sea and how they fall off the land, made up by men. Small clouds align, theories of worship. Women's bodies collect material, the way metals accrue in organs, the accumulation of chemical residue, the red bricks of the day in a woman's chest, like weights on a diver ungracefully stomping into the lake. Behind me, a genealogy of red-cheeked maids in maroon check pinafores, not a hair out of place, no boarding school narrative, babies shooting out of them, straightening beds, nursing while smoking, in labour with burns, hairs on their breasts wet with the strain, from them I have taken yellow hands and knees, arthritic from kneeling to scrub. The man he tells you he is not, tells you to get an abortion. I live in skirt behaviours round the social club, where men and cheap beer will spin you till you're sick. Governance is bountiful, other than for the young girl who swims out to sea for her reckless behaviour. I make my face white and orange for the jewellery I expect to own. A mimic octopus might be many things, but it cannot mimic me. I stayed with a man after work who kept tarantulas in the loft space. I had on my mint deli uniform and my face was grey. I cut cheese all day long and ham on an industrial slicer. I didn't want to see the bastard black legs of the largest tarantula. He called it king. It slept in a plastic container with air holes at the top and my protests were nothing down the rattling metal pull downstairs where he came with the wobbling box in hand. How sad it actually was to see the spider uselessly point his legs in the air as if to sense a threat in this house with a Disney princess quilt and freeze for his six-year-old daughter who stays each Saturday. We don't talk about her. He hides the spiders when she comes around. I am not enough to have them hidden for. The blanket of my apron is a pouch for King and in the dirt of his kitchen, I would like to go home. We chew processed meat in the grand old hall, my hand on a gilded banister, above a musical washboard. They hang like ceramic angels, faces chipped, hands chipped with warts and galvanised steel and other kitchenalia. My mother folding tumble-dryer tubes next to a sleeping baby while detergent wends through her arteria, replicating in the blood and gathering as a bright yellow crud in the historical river, brown toxins shared down the gene pool. Too young to work but still changing beds in the early hours for a holiday cottage, foaming at the mouth for a future untenable, stealing biscuits from a tin. A lousy future that taunts itself on the end of a string, composting from the inside out like a Halloween pumpkin gone bad. I will ask my mother to push me through the ivory gates. I will raid the box of coupons for an answer, lost to the coins kept in the sterident tin. I will steal from my own mother to make myself richer and smoke her old cigarettes to make myself sicker, become impregnated with ideas and resist her own impregnation, cut anything out of me that starts to grow in there. 
up the chimney and towards the field, a stark, bright woman in glowering dusk wears blinding white, and like a fish, she sheds herself, and in her hand, she holds something small, ungrippable. Thank you. And now the extraordinary no, man of the hour, Will Harris. <laughs> so I thought we'd start by reading the first poem, which is on the first page. It looks kind of ornamental when you open the book, but it's the key to the book. And I'd, I'd like to, I think it's quite important to read as well. And actually I spent a bit of this afternoon, just in case anyone asked me, uh, learning the meanings of all of, the, all of these words. Uh, but maybe, okay, I, I'm, just, I'm going to read the first three poems back to back. So maybe I should just do a brief explanation. So the words here are all the words in the OED beginning rend, arranged in chronological order from the Old English rend through to rendang. Or when it first entered the OED in 1947, obviously people eating rendang long before 1947. It's kind of curry. And then there's a poem which is kind of based on that. And then I'm going to read the first poem in the book. Rend, render, render, rending, rendered, rending, rendering, rendles, rend, renderer, rendezvous, rendit, rendering, render, rend, rendy, rendry, rendition, renderable, rendible, rendid, rendezvous, rendezvousing, rendezvouser, rendingly, rendling, render set, render set, rendle wood, rendable, rend rock, rendzina, rendu, rendu, osler, weber, rendam. In West Sumatra, they call rendang randang. Neither shares a root with rending. Rows and rows have French and Frisian roots you can't hear. Context makes the difference clear. Here lies one whose name was writ in Bahasa. Here are words I've said in memory of her who I could never speak to. Chandrasari, I call you wrongly. Rend me rightly rootless and unclear. Holy man. Everywhere was coming down with Christmas. The streets and window displays ethereal after rain, but what was it? October? Maybe I'd been thinking about why I hated Tibetan prayer flags and whether that was similar to how I felt about Christmas. Things become meaningless, severed from the body of ritual, of belief. Then I thought about those who see kindness in my face, or see it as unusually calm, which must have to do with that image of the Buddha smiling. I turned off Regent Street and onto Piccadilly, then down a side road by Costa to German Street, where a man caught my eyes as I was about to cross the road and asked to shake my hand. You have a kind face, he said. Really. He was wearing a diamond-checked golfer's jumper and said he was a holy man. As soon as he let go, he started scribbling in a notepad, then tore out a sheet, which he scrunched into a little ball and pressed to his forehead and the back of his neck before blowing on it once, sharply, and giving it to me. I see kindness in you, but also bad habits, am I right? Not drinking or drugs or sex, not like that, but bad habits. 2020 will be a good year for you. Don't cut your hair on a Tuesday or Thursday, have courage. He took out his wallet and showed me a photograph of a temple in front of which stood a family, his, I think. A crowd of businessmen flowed around us. Name the color of the rainbow, any color, except red or orange. He was looking to my right at what I thought could be a rainbow. Despite the sun, a light wind blew the rain about like scattered sand. But when I followed his gaze, it seemed to be fixed on either a fish restaurant or a soup display, or maybe backwards in time to the memory of a rainbow. Why did he stop me? 
I've been dawdling, staring at people on business lunches, restaurants like high-end clinics, etherized on white wine. I must have been the only one to catch his eye, to hold it. What colour could I see? I tried to picture the full spectrum, arrayed in stained glass, shining sadly and then refracted through a single shade that appeared to me in the form of a freshly mown lawn. A stack of banknotes, a cartoon frog, a row of pines, an unripe mango, a septic wound. I saw the glen beside the tall elm tree where the sweetbriar smells so sweet. Then the lane in Devon where my dad grew up and the river in Riel where my mum played. It was blue and yellow mixed like Howard Hodgkin's version of a Bombay sunset or pistachio ice cream. A jade statue of the Buddha. I remember being asked, forced, to give my favourite colour by a teacher. Why did it matter? which was the colour of my favourite Power Ranger, of the knight beheaded by Gawain, of the girdle given to him by Lady Bertilac, and chose the same again. The paper in your hand, if it is your colour, will bring you luck. And if not, he trailed off. First hold it to your forehead, then the back of your neck, then blow. I unscrunched the ball. Now put it here, he said. And money, please. I had no cash. Nothing. He looked me in the eyes and said again that he was a holy man. I felt honour bound to give him something. Up and down the street, men rode to their important offices. I told him it was my favourite colour, or had been. And as I did, I saw us from a distance, as we might seem years from now, scraps of coloured fabric draped across a hall, which, taken out of context, signified nothing. And I flinched, waiting for the blade to fall. Yeah, keep ripping. Oh my God, it's only got through, like... <laughs> Ten people. It's a lot of lot of room to get through. And if you don't want to rip, that's fine. Because if you rip, you're committing yourself to a speech act at some point. <laughs> um, so quite a lot of the po uh, the book is made up of sequences, and they're quite hard to read from without being here for a long time. And I don't have that long, so I'm just going to read. A, a few little bits from this sequence called The White Jumper. It was a sequence I wrote over a period of months, when uh, several months, kind of spring to summer, when I knew that I would have to respond to the work of Emily Bronte in some way. And instead I became fixated on this dream I had about a white jumper. But there are actually little, little references to Emily Bronte in there that are basically meaningless. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they seemed happy with it. <laughs> so I'm, I've kind of isolated one strand in it, which is the, the dream, the dream strand. And the stuff which I guess relate to whiteness more broadly and that seem appropriate for reading now. The White Jumper. Running and jumping from one grassy platform to another, I stop on the next patch of grass, branches so arranged as to focus a beam of light on the grass, white and gleaming against the green, the white jumper, the white jumper, the white. We were at pizza restaurant for Hugo's birthday. Dan said he was coming back from work. A late shift at the hospital. Then a car came towards him at the crossing. He stood his ground. And the next thing he knows, he's shouting. And the asshole's driving off. In the ambulance, they're telling him not to look down. Mate, look here. Look here, mate. Laid up for six months. It went to the High Court. It was two years before he got compensation. I looked across at Hugo. I looked out of the window. Next week, Dan flies to Australia. Four months. No time to waste. He's going to finish his novel. It's about a time-travelling wood elf. You know how relativity works. Space folds over on itself. The US military had this plan to nuke the moon. It all happened during the Cold War. They didn't plan on it being overcast. 
I looked across at Hugo. I looked out of the window. We were sitting upstairs, and in the whitest end-of-day light, the walls white too, it felt not just like we were above ground, but that despite being in Covent Garden, we were on a ridge above a forest, looking down, our feet in thicket dark, our heads in thickest stars. I hadn't seen Hugo in years. At primary school, we would stay up late and play Sonic the Hedgehog, passing the controller back and forth when one of us died. Run, jump, jump, run, jump, run. One night, his grandma screamed at us in Urdu. She wore a plain white nightie. We stopped laughing, or we tried laughing quietly. By the time he had completed a level, we could run through each jump without looking. On the way home, I ran past a pret, a spaghetti house, a Five Guys, a Bella Italia, the path lit by the lights of passing cars, the pith of a discarded pizza, pret, spaghetti house, Five Guys, Bella Italia, crossing the road, a car honked, its owner shouting at me through his closed window, look where you're going, cunt. I was looking for the white jumper. Are some dreams more trivial than others? Last night, I dreamt that Morrissey was performing and I stood behind him, waving my arms in sync. Fuck this, he said, and stormed off stage. <laughs> the Nazis admired Caspar David Friedrich for his blood and soil vision. In several pa paintings, two friends contemplate the moon, which seems to be exploding. One shows the blast in its white heat. Another has the sky a darker blue, the moon dark too. The moon is down, I have not heard the clock. A friend rests his hand against the other's shoulder to console him. I know that blood stands for race and soil for nation, but blood and soil makes me think of bloodied soil. Do some people imagine themselves in the same relation to their place of birth as a scab to a wound? Bob recounts a dream. I see a green meadow and a white coffin. I'm afraid that my mother is in it, but I open the lid, and luckily it is not my mother, but me. Theophile Gautier dreamt of white swan women, singing and swimming down the Rhine, each one whiter than white down, but one among them, Claire de Lune, pure, trailing boreal fumes, breasts like bunched camellias, a blanched battle of satin and paros marble, communion host and candle, of what white was her whiteness made? Pallor of alabaster, duvet of dove, lactic drop and lily, crystal ondine, mother of God. Frederick Nietzsche recounts a dream. Once the distance between us was so small, you could have crossed over to me by footbridge. Cross it, I said to you. Cross over to me. But you didn't want to. And when I asked again, you were silent. Now mountains and rivers have come between us, and at the mention of the footbridge, you cry. I was thinking of what I could read that would close on a happy note, but didn't really have anything. <laughs> but this, ah, oh, this one is, yeah, this one is, uh, one year I lived near these uh, water meadows, and I, I always just used to think they were very, it was like a kind of scenic place for a walk. And then I realized that the kind of undulations of the meadows were because they were where bodies had been buried, probably, they were probably plague pits. And this was, yeah, that's the note which I'm going to end on. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it, it cuts from <coughs> England to Indonesia. And it's called
called Scene Change. A row of Georgian houses slopes down to a meadow filled with pretty little meadow flowers where you could forget these rolling barrows started life as stacks of corpses piled high with earth and stone that rotted back into the land and only after several generations growth grew to resemble what you might call scenic. Built by the Dutch in the century before last, I climb the high steps of the bell tower and taking in my hand the tongue, the clapper, ring too slowly at first, aware of my imposture, and then too quickly in a bid to compensate. As it dings hollow across the square and down across the car polluted outskirts of the colony. Thank you. So as Will's hard-ass editor right now, I have to ask him some questions about his book and the process. And I can't believe, because we've been working on this book for a really long time, I think I saw the first version of it a year and a half ago. Not that it needed that much work, that's just like publishing lead times. It feels quite extraordinary to be able to sit here and to present it to everybody and share it with the world. And I kind of wanted to start with a sort of quite broad question because I came to the manuscript obviously when it didn't look anything like it looks now, um, but you had started it before I looked at it. Um, and I was just wondering broadly about how the book came to be. What was its sort of like germination process? Because as it stands now, it's quite like a complex fabric of characters, voices, realities, dreams. It's structured in sort of four separate sequences and it's been quite a long journey to creating this like multifarious book and I just wonder sort of how it began and how it felt working on it all this time. <laughs> I guess the main thing that happened was that I sent the poems to you <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it became a multifarious layered object over time. I guess the weird thing with a book as, a, as an object is that it only becomes something once it leaves your hands as in once you share it with other people. I don't really think you can make a book in isolation. A book is like a kind of communal object which is shaped by other voices and, mm. yeah. And resistances maybe as well, because I remember us talking about how we didn't want the book to be a sort of book of individual separated poems. We wanted there to be sort of sequences that led into other sequences and for it to have a kind of arc that se seemed to link all the poetry together. That was, yeah, that's, a, that's quite a, a hard way to look at your writing. I think mm. it really takes someone else to see that. Mm. When, you've, when you've sat with work for a really long time, especially when it's your, your first book, like the, a lot of the poems in here, like ten, some of them are, go back like 10 years, you know, stuff which I can't really like detach from myself. Mm. And so it really took you and just kind of all the, the, the things like rearranging them on the page and just breaking them up and recombining them, mm. stuff that you kind of can't do to your own poems sometimes because it's you, you have this and were you writing right up until what point were you writing up until because I find that quite interesting with a poetry collection as well the time span because you can have poems in a book that are 10 years old and poems in a book that might be a couple of months old mm. and how do you sort of merge those two things together yeah the, the there's one called half got out which is near the end which I wrote about a couple of yeah like 
last summer, mm. I guess. So that was, was, yeah, pretty close to the deadline. Yeah, there was a couple of emails towards the end where Will would be like, oh, I've written all these new poems. What do you think? Can we just like put them in? And I was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and when I first got it, I did. My first feeling was regret for <laughs> all the, like, the book it could have been. Mm. I think a lot of, because you often think you only have one chance to put something out into the world. I was like, why didn't I just publish every single thing I have? I had. Just like, um, well, we made a book A and a book B. So yeah. book A is this, and book B was everything we took out of it. And I feel like book B was as big as book A. Mm. Yeah, book B is pretty good. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> is. It's, uh, Damn it, we published the wrong one. <laughs> it's called the, sh the Shadow Book in my, <laughs> in my documents. And I first published you in the magazine. Yeah. Uh, ground to 143 after the fact yeah. um, and I published you alongside a poet who I know we both really love Nathaniel Mackey um, who's a, a North American poet and I feel like there are perhaps parallels I could draw between your work and Nathaniel Mackey uh, for those who aren't familiar Nathaniel has mm. been writing a sort of career-long sequential poem called The Song of the Andombulu, which imagines a sort of pre-human society. It's really mystical, it's really imagistic, dense lyric poetry. And he's been writing this sequence for 30 years, and he hasn't published it all yet in his, its entirety because it's not finished. And I think there's something about the sort of patience in Nathaniel's work and the sort of longevity of thinking, mm. thinking ahead in that kind of a way. You know, he started this sequence like 30 years ago. And I wonder if you could talk maybe about your influences in that way. I know that mm. you like him, people like W.S. Graham figure mm. uh, quite heavily, John Ashbery, May May Burst and Brugger. And they're all quite sequential thinkers in poetry and they write quite sort of long, dense narrative mm. poems at times. Yeah, I think. Nathaniel Mackey in particular was one of those poets who, you know, when you discover a writer and you suddenly feel good about writing again, because he has this particular way of thinking through sound. And I, I think you can, you can lose track of that when you're writing or you, when you spend too long kind of thinking about what you're trying to say. Iterations of this where he says, um, sound's own city, the wall I hit my head against. Polis was to be and to be so hit. We heard the clamour clash, blue consonants, noises low, sibling sense, which is kind of in that's that's kind of that's kind of the vibe of a lot of his work. It has this very kind of like heavy rhythmic style, but there are also once you when you unwrap it or un unravel it, there are these incredibly complex ideas which he knits into the music of it. This low, you know, this idea of poetry is a low sibling sense of kind of conscious thought. I think that's what as a writer you're always trying to tap into. And also the fact that he extends this thought, this music over these um, huge long sequences. So he, ha he had a radio show um, before and he maybe... And he's a musician. Does. Yeah, he's a, mu yeah. he's a musician. And I was, I was really into jazz um, when I was younger. And I think I, that idea of kind of riffing and taking an idea or a sound and like exploring it or exploding it over an extended set of ideas, I think was mm. really strong for me. And someone like Mamie Bursenberger is really interesting in the opposite way, and her sounds are so flat. She works with this very prosaic, long line, which seems almost like anti-poetry, or anti this idea of poetry as noises, low sibling sense. But it, it kind of creates its own kind of music or order, mm, which mm. I think all the really great poets do. Mm. And there's something about their sort of poetry that feels like lifelong philosophies 
and philosophizing mm. about life and about poetry that aren't limited to the sort of single anecdotal poem. Mm. They're more just uh, long-term in intellectualizing about life and theorizing <laughs> about life. Like they use poetics and they use sound um, to sort of write those, those mm. poems. It does remind me of the bit in your book, the mind's white rind, not the white rind's mind, which mm. is such a, like it, it gestures to so much outside of what it's actually gesturing to because of the like the sense inherent in the sound of that section. Mm. Yeah. I, That's how a lot of yeah. our editorial sessions would go. be like, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Sit in silence. <laughs> feel awkward. And maybe yeah. about those fragmentary sections because the book is made up of these sequences um, that can lend themselves to being quite sort of imagistic or abstract on the page. They're sort of spaced out a bit and they don't really look like um, maybe <coughs> traditional poems. And it can be quite hard, I think, with a book of poetry like this to fold in sequences into a book and to retain a sort of arc throughout it and to retain a sort of narrative running through. I wonder, is there any reason you're drawn to sequences when you're writing and will your next book be a sort of sequence length mm. book? Because when I wrote mine, mine's full of sequences as well. Mm. And I remember thinking at the end, God, if I'd just been patient, I could have had one long sequence running through this whole book. Mm. But I think it, you come to that perhaps through like practicing it in small increments. Yeah. Well, I think it was really important for me because I spent a long time just trying to write very perfect kind of chiseled poems and I would get, I don't know if anyone else has this experience, I would get so obsessed with making it just just right that I would really, I would lose the thread of what I was trying to say or what I was trying to do. You kind of get caught up in the, the, the like cogs and everything that you, mm. you lose the kind of like spark. And so for me, working in sequences or using tools like narrative were ways of getting out of that or like of retaining a of, of like freeing myself from the kind of, yeah, I guess the trap of over-crafting. Where's the ripped up book at, by the way? Oh yeah. Who's got it? Oh, okay, oh, wow. we're making doing, it. How well. many pages are left? One third. Oh, okay, people are I'm doing good. it. <laughs> Quite a lot of... A lot more to go. We can rip yeah. up another one, right? Yeah, we've, got, we've got loads of books here to rip up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So when I think about your book as well, outside of sort of the poetic structure, it feels like an ecosystem of different characters, people, some of them real people, some of them unreal people. Richard Spencer, famous neo-Nazi features and you infiltrate mm. his dreams. And there's definitely like a, you're sort of skipping between realities and unrealities using real people, people's names and imagined sort of spaces and beings. How does it feel to inhabit real spaces and real people and to speak for people and to sort of mix that with a kind of like fictionalized way of speaking in a poem? Did you have any sort of like mm. maybe ethical concerns about the sort of the way that you were dealing with characters in your poetry? Because I don't really come mm. across it that lot, that much I think like a very peopled and characterful poetics. Mm. And it does feel like voices, like when I read your book, it's like we're being spoken to by so many different people. Yeah, I think that was important to me as well, like these kind of guy ropes to take me out of the normal poet poetic 
way of thinking to mm. like bed it in the real world, kind of force it to have some external reality. I just think you can get so, like poetry, so many people, it's, it's so easy to get like lost in this kind of like world of like symbols and like this play of like the moon and the stars and the trees and having these anchors are important, important to me. And I guess making it real for me. Mm. And the Richard um, Spencer poem is like hyper surreal. Like it's a sequence of dreams. And also throughout the collection, I feel like dreams are foregrounded as a really important mm. way of like thinking about life and thinking about poetry. Dreams recur so much yeah. that you sort of don't really know what's being dreamt and what's being lived. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the Richard Spencer thing came about, I remember writing that very quickly on a train ride, just because I'd been, I just, I'd been thinking about how you could respond to the logic of a kind of a neo-Nazi or a fascist. And a lot of the time, they, their arguments mimic logic. And so to respond, there's, all, there's this idea that you can just, if you find the perfect argument, you can kind of demolish them. But that seems to kind of miss the, the appeal of them, which is always this, there's, there's, they live in the kind of world of alternative facts. I was thinking the more the most effective way to respond to someone like Richard Spencer would be to kind of infiltrate their dream world and to to get beneath their subconscious this place where which is kind of beyond fact. There's this amazing bit in Freud where he talks about how in waking life everything converges, everything kind of like falls into a single stream. Whereas in dreams things like overlap and interweave. And I think that's a really unsettling experience to the the fascist mind that things can be interwoven and that that that, that kind of clash, that clamor, like that Mackie talks about. That's like the thing which is truly antithetical to fascism on like an aesthetic level, is like interweaving, and which is the kind of experience of dream consciousness. And that feels close to poetry's inherent fragmentary, self-reflexive, strange nature. Yeah. To write about. Do you want to read a bit of it? Do we have time to read a bit of the Richardson? Yeah. yeah. Maybe just a couple of stanzas. Yeah, this is quite an upbeat poem, actually. Maybe I should have read this one before. Neo-Nazi one, yeah. Should I read, and then we should, and then we can... And then we can answer and then we can any do, questions yeah, that you may have And then have we can do the audience, yeah. the audience part. Mm. Okay. I'll, okay, I'll read this. <laughs> Seven Dreams of Richard Spencer. One, once I woke up with the actual gilded horns of a cuck, and you admired them, and assured me I need not fear dreams that pass through the horned gates. But then I turned into a yellow cowfish flapping on the bed, and you picked me up by my small horns and flushed me down the toilet. Two, once I believed myself to be a cuckoo, when in fact I was a pair of binoculars looking at a cuckoo, I hung around your neck, swaying on the drive home, where you left me on the seat. There I turned into a moat of dust. The next day you sat in silence, the churring call of a nightjar outside, while I nested in your eye. Three, once I was a cucumber, and you pretended I was useful. But when I said I was a Gurkha, speaking German fluently, you tried to pickle me. I remember wanting to turn into a kitten or something cute, but ended up as a novelty keychain for a real estate broker's called Big Dicks. Four. Once I was the chlorine in a public swimming pool and I flowed into the open gills of a woman I believed to be my mother before it occurred to me that my mother isn't young and doesn't have gills. I turned into a macrophage and was able to see that the woman I believed to be my mother was addled with cancer, so I started to eat my way through every cell I came across. Not because I wanted to save her, but because it tasted good. Five. Once Europe was a market square, and though it wasn't market day, I had come to sit and drink hot chocolate and listen to the buskers, one of whom was singing Schumann's Dichterliebe, which for some reason you thought was bleeding love. 
It's not, I said, but later I heard Leona Lewis's voice and the flapping of the pigeons outside the National Museum. The exhibits on loan had been replaced by photographs. Each time I tried to touch one, it moved. You better back the fuck off, said the security guard. I turned into a boy and girl who had lost their parents and we hugged each other, crying. Six. Once the rain fell in vertical girders and I thought I could walk between them, pressing my cheek against their cold surface, but a mansion rose about me, several floors high, and a voice called, telling me to leave. Father, I said, why have you forsaken me? I turned into a great eyeball, and still he looked away, so I turned into a frog and slipped without a sound into a mill pond. Seven. Once I was not myself or another man, or either of their lips exactly, but the expression of a kiss they shared, and at first, I have to say, it was beautiful. But then I felt myself turning into, or no, recognising myself as a desert flower, which was even better. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so, now if everyone's, I, I feel like we're not going to get all the way round. How many pages, are there any pages? Oh, it's here. How many pages are left? Oh no. Oh. I'm so sorry. You won't get to rip it up. Is Do it, another one. Because the acknowledgement's been. Well, it's ended. It's ended? Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. That's so kind. Yeah. So some people with pages donate half your page. But not everyone. Yeah. And if you wa who mm. wants a page? <laughs> one person wants a page. You can rip up the blurb, maybe. Mm. Blurb's good for ripping up. Well, I didn't expect... Oh, this is nice. Okay, good. Yeah, I've got some sharing going on here. There you go. <clears throat> Anybody else want a page over here? Cool. This is a good game. Okay, no, it's good. You... Are we... Do, also, do you have any questions for us? No, wait, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. We should do this first, Do right? this first? Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. So I don't know exactly how... To do this. How to do this, because this is... <laughs> This is an experiment. This is something we're all going to make together. Um, Maybe everyone who has a bit of paper should stand up. Well, that's... If. Yes, yeah. Well, should we start by standing up? That's better, isn't it? Yeah. Because that'll take, that'll take the pressure away. Okay, wow. Because, yeah. So we'll Brilliant. start by standing up and then... So now what we want you to do is read a line... Or a word. Or a word. All together or one by one? All together? Okay. Maybe we could do line by line. line How does that line? sound? Yeah. So like the first row would read what Look, they would we, like to read. Why don't we do it like a... Well, I think everyone should do it all together at once. I quite, I quite like that idea. Yeah? Yeah. And, then, and that'll kind of free everyone up a bit okay, as well. Okay, cool. <laughs> Alright. Okay, so I'll do a countdown and then during that countdown I want you to hone in on the word or line that you're going to read. Five, four... <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. That was great. Okay, well done, should, we keep, should we keep doing it? Yeah, we if you want. We do it in complex ways. Okay. What we could do is, so if I think of one, two, three, and then you pick one or two or three in your head, and then when I say one, all the ones read theirs, and then when I say two, all the twos read theirs, and when I say three, all the three... Three, three, there's like poem karaoke. Mm. And then we'll only do one more version of this and then you can all relax. Okay, that's good. Okay, so has everyone got a one or a two or a three in their head? Yeah. Okay, go ones. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, that, that, was, that was a good bit. Griff Reese Jones's Griff, pink Griff, shirt. Griff Reese Jones's pink shirt over here. Was, okay. Number twos. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Number threes. Oh, we've got threes in the back. Wow, that's cool. You had the same, how is that possible? Nice. <laughs> 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 okay, one more version. We'll do colours. Oh. Red, yellow, blue, like the colours of the book, or have you got something oh, yeah, no. that obviously... Okay. No, that's good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, everyone think of a colour that's red, or blue, or yellow, and speak it as though we're cursing something. Let's really, like, mm. have a poem karaoke thing going on here, okay? So, Whoever chose red, read now. Blues. <laughs> and the yellows. Nice. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Now you've all done a poetry reading. Wow. It's really... So, it's really does powerful. anybody have any questions for either me or Will? We've got one at the back. Hello, hi. Um, we actually came thinking this was going to be a, a, a talk about Indonesian cookery. <laughs> but, but, but remarkably, we, we actually really enjoyed uh, <laughs> that. Um, but I, I was wondering what impact Indonesia uh, has maybe had on your poetry, if, if any, oh. other than the title? Well, yeah, I guess that's, that's so funny that happened. That was, that was probably, it's probably like my, my worry when I thought that poetry was that this would happen, but I, I never actually thought it would. It would. The um, first event. Because there are very few Indonesian cookbooks, so it's, there wasn't been one for a while, right? What was the, there was that classic one from the, the 80s, what was her name? The Siri Owen. Siri Owen, yeah. Anyway, uh, so Indonesia. So actually, weirdly, the story behind the, the, the title is that I was commissioned to write uh, for a literary and food night. And I, so I had to write about food. And I, I, had, <laughs> I had no idea how to do it because my engagement with Indonesia is quite distant. And I also don't cook. <laughs> and I, I definitely couldn't make. Well, I mean, I could make rendang from a pre-made sauce, but um, so I, I, I had this. I staged this uh, fake interview with myself, where I'd, in this alternate world, written a book called Rendang, and I was being interviewed by a patronising interviewer who was like asking me about my Indonesian heritage, and why I'd, I'd given my book this exotic title, Rendang, and so it then became this kind of way of talking about yeah, language and identity, and because I don't speak Bahas Indonesia. Rendang is, and the reason it's so partly the reason why it's capitalized is it's just this kind of signifier of this other place, which is what it's always been to me. This place which I have links to, which I but which I'm also separate from. There are no, yeah, there are no poems in it about cooking <laughs> at all. I'm really sorry that you came. Came. Still going to buy the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I mean, <laughs> you were joking. Okay, you were joking. 
You were joking. Oh, God, I'm so gullible. That's so... Uh, that, you just absolutely touched my... Yeah, touched my... <laughs> that, that was going to happen. <laughs> oh, my God. One nil. One nil. Well done. You, you got me. You got me. That's, yeah. Thank you. I was just wondering, what's your favorite pronoun? Oh, that's, good. that's a good question. I did run a, a, a short... I did run a poetry course at the South Bank on pronouns, which is the background to that. It's, I guess, quite bore, boringly for a poet. It's you, just because you is very, it's very versatile. And a big, po a big poet for me when I was learning to write was W.S. Graham, and the way he uses this kind of flexible you, which can, which almost the way it kind of brings in the reader as well. Like he has this amazing poem called *The Constructed Space*, where. It's kind of a poem about writing and why he writes and how he's creating this, this, public, this public space in which he can communicate with the world. But it also reads to me like a love poem. So there's this amazing bit where he says, how's it going? There's a, anyway, the, the, the crux bit is that he says, I say this silence here for in it I might hear you better. And yeah, it's just a really beautiful phrase which kind of captures both intimate but public space that a poem can create. I wanted to ask, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but um, how do you kind of deal with the expectations that people have from you as a poet of colour and a mixed race, um, mixed race poet, you know, asking or expecting you to perform, with, um, to perform within their um, limited scope and sort of asking you to put on a performance, I guess, and, you know, um, talking about things that are specific to your Indonesian heritage, for example, or, you know, quite limited to one mm. specific type of experience that um, is quite exoticized and, you know, quite um, oriental and only sort of seen from one perspective. Yeah, I guess a lot of the book is about, I mean, that's probably why it's called Rendang, but there are no poems about the curry. It's, it's meant to be, I, I guess I, I've always struggled since I started writing in a way which incorporated more of my life to deal with the simultaneous responsibility which I guess is a person marked by race in a racially discriminatory society to speak to that experience which is it's impossible not to but also in a way that doesn't erase the larger parts of my experience like the kind of, I guess, the subconscious life. You know, there's that that um, M. Norbizi Phillips uh, Philip quote, where she talks about how she writes to prove that she's human, and I think that was a big thing about discovering language poets who were people of color, like M. Norbizi Phillip and uh, Mimi Brosenberger and Nathaniel Mackey, because they found this way to write in a way that, that wasn't just they didn't use the typical signifiers of identity in a way that felt like it was kind of trading on their identity, commodifying it, selling it, but which acknowledged it without reducing it. And I think that's always the, the burden and responsibility of the thing. It's, it's like a kind of, it's not something you kind of juggle in a way that they, they cancel each other out. But the reason my poetry is so great is because, I often think about this, compared to like novel or the novel or other forms, the, the, the speaker is always shifting. There's not a clear speaker in a poem because the speaker at the end of the day is always language itself. It is language voicing itself, which is how 
you can, you can kind of do justice to the, 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 the kind of double bind of being a kind of marked person within the world, but also a load of sounds on the, on the page. That would be my convoluted answer. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.